once again glad to return to the book of Hebrews. I love going through a book in the Bible and just taking it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Um, hope some of you are with me on that and enjoy that as well. But we're on Hebrews chapter 3. And as we began the study of Hebrews, uh, the title of the entire series is simply that Jesus is greater and he is greater than everything. And the first chapter of Hebrews just goes into great detail about describing who Jesus is, that he's not just a man, that he is God. He is the, he is the great high priest. He is the author of life. He has created everything and it begins to just exalt him. And then uh, chapter two, we looked at as well. Uh, in chapter two, at the beginning, how he exhorts us to pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Uh, a dangerous thing here that that he's saying, pay close attention. We get distracted. They were getting distracted. They had just heard the gospel and were already getting distracted from it. Kind of like they did in Galatians as Paul delivered it once to them. Then they got distracted from it, allowed a false gospel to come in. So how do we maintain the gospel and the true, what true Christianity is, true doctrine. How do we guard our life and doctrine closely? As Paul challenged Timothy to do, we pay close attention to it. Even the Bereans in the book of Acts, when they heard the preaching, they searched the scriptures to make sure what was being preached is actually the word of God. So we're, we're exhorted to do the same thing there in Hebrews chapter 2. And uh, also uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, we looked at a little bit on, on the fear of death that uh, the author of Hebrews says there is now no fear of death for those whose faith and whose trust is in the one who has conquered death. There is nothing to fear uh, there. Most people's greatest fear is the fear of death. Before for a Christian, there is no longer any fear that to be absent from the body is to be present with God in eternity with him. All the blessings bestowed upon you. That would be given to Christ as far as our righteousness. He's not looking at us and the things we've done wrong. But we immediately are seen as the righteousness of God. And that there is no fear. We don't have to fear the judgment of God. Because Jesus has taken that judgment for us on the cross. So we have no fear of death. And then finally there toward the end of Hebrews chapter 2. Is the realization that we are brothers in Christ. That this is a unique relationship that we have. I mean Christ the Messiah, the anointed one, the, who is God. Jesus is God. And he put on flesh, the incarnation. But this is, this is an extremely unique one, this Jesus. But yet we are brothers with him. It is the relationship that, that he brings us into. He adopts us and we are now part of that family and we are brothers to him. So we left off there. Now let's look at chapter 3. Chapter 3 Starts off, of course, in a very similar way uh, to last week with the word. What's the first word? It is therefore. And what are you supposed to ask when you see the word therefore? Anyone know? Hey, nice. All right. All right. Anytime you see the word therefore, a uh, little little uh, inside scoop on how to study the Bible is you're always supposed to ask, what is it there for? All right. So why is it there? He says, therefore, in other words, he's building on an argument that has come before he's already given this discourse and now he's there for so sometimes we look at chapters and we see them as chopped off and separate from the chapter before we always have to remind ourselves that while the word of God is an errant inspired infallible uh, a man that came through I believe in the 1400s and actually put the chapter numbers there 
So that part in itself, and then another man later on came through and put the numbering on the sentences. But sometimes those chapter numbers fall kind of at an odd place. So, so here he starts with, therefore, the argument was based on, if you look back just a little bit, what Jesus has done and that we are his brothers and that uh, he was the propitiation, the atonement for our sins, making peace between us and God. We deserve God's wrath, but God, that, that wrath is appeased by Jesus' perfect life, representing man and God. He takes the punishment on the cross, and this relationship between those who trust in Christ now as their Savior is a relationship of peace. The wrath has been atoned for, and we're now seen as brothers with Christ himself. Therefore, all right, so chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers. It is hard to go very far into the book of Hebrews. I'm trying to go as far as I can, as fast as I can, but some of these points I just have to stop with only a few words in. Uh, he says the word holy brothers. How are we considered holy brothers? Are we holy in and of ourselves? Is he looking at them and their lifestyle? And has he said that they are sinless in and of themselves? That's not how it works, right? Our holiness is an alien foreign. It's a foreign holiness. It is given to us by Jesus in his life and work on the cross. And he adopts us. He sanctifies us. And this is why we are seen as truly holy, because God's no longer looking at our record. He's looking at the record of his son, Jesus Christ. And that is the good news that we're not judged on our record. We're judged on the record of Jesus Christ. If you flip just over probably a page, you have Hebrews chapter two, verse 11, which is also building upon this. He says, for he speaking of Jesus who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. So this is Jesus, this sanctification, this holianizing, this, this process of us becoming a holier person practically, but positionally we are holy before God due to the one that we've trusted in to sanctify us, which is Jesus Christ. So he starts off in chapter 3, therefore holy brothers. And here he is reminding them of the relationship they have with Christ. Uh, Christ is, is welcoming us and, and, and acknowledging us as brothers. How could God acknowledge us as brothers? When we go back to Adam and Eve and we realize they sinned one time, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, elsewhere we see sin and the punishment due to that sin. And then we look at even the final judgment that those who have died in their sin, there is the judgment of God. So how can we be seen as brothers here? is because we get his record and that relationship is now mended and we are right with God. So now we are the holy brethren. We are the holy brothers. Uh, moving on down, chapter three. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Another very important part here. This is a specific, a special calling from God himself. And these brothers who are being sanctified by Jesus they have been positionally made, been made right before God. They will never lose that. They have been called by God as well. Salvation is not just a logical process of, 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 of moving closer intellectually to understanding this. And then, aha, it's an intellectual moment. You've arrived at, and now a person is saved. Those things are extremely important, though. We want to make sure that the object of our faith is the true Jesus Christ of the Bible. But 
There is this specific heavenly calling that where God calls us unto him. Uh, if we look at John 6, 44, I believe we have it on the screen. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. Uh, Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we see this specific calling that takes place. Many of you, if you are a believer, can uh, can even look back on your life and perhaps recall something like this. God's calling on your life. I remember I was uh, sitting in a little church, Beach Street Baptist Church in Gurdon, Arkansas, and I'd gone to church there all my life. I uh, thought everything was right between God and I and went to church. My parents were Christians. I uh, talked to God, prayed. My mom prayed with us in the mornings. Uh, tried to be a pretty good kid, you know. And but I remember that one day uh, I was sitting in church and there was a, a specific calling from God that was just irresistible. There, there, was, this, there was this weight of my, the guiltiness of my sin and, uh, and, and realizing who I was before God as the pastor was up here saying, you can't be good enough to get to heaven. You can't go to church enough to get to heaven. And you can't just say, hey, I believe in God and that's enough. And I began to realize that I was not in a right relationship with God. I began to realize that I was going to be punished for the sin and that relationship was broken. And I began to see the need for a savior. And I can even look back in my life and see this calling that took place as a young man on the fourth row in Beach Street Baptist Church. I never will forget it. I remember the pain of my hands. I was squeezing down the pew because they were inviting people to come forward tonight, you know, if uh, God's call, God calling you and God was calling me and I was like, no, I'm not going to go. And uh, later on, uh, I made it all the way home and I was a miserable soul. I went back to my room and cried and cried and cried. And my mom finally came back there and said, what's wrong? And I uh, explained the whole thing. And, and so it was just this awesome, uh, special moment in my life that I can still look back on today. But anyway, so I am a holy brother. You're a holy brother. If you receive this special calling from God, you have been born again. You're saved uh, continue on in verse one, consider Jesus. So therefore, holy brothers, he's writing to believers, you who share in a heavenly calling. If you are a believer, again, it's not just that you're better than others, that you've chosen to live a higher moral code than others. But God, who created the universe, has called you unto him and you are now saved. You are brother to Christ. So he says, you who are brothers, you who have received this heavenly calling, Consider Jesus. Now, he starts this chapter off in a very similar way to chapter two. If you look back over to the beginning of chapter two, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So it's this consider Jesus. In other words, pay attention, dwell upon, fix your thoughts on him. This is our everything. He is the greatest don't look for another to come. This is the fulfillment of everything that we've been taught in the Old Testament. The prophets spoke of this one, the Messiah, the Christ, who was to come, the anointed one of God, the Savior that would come to forgive us our sins. He's saying, dwell on him. Fix your thoughts on him. This is who has called you to him. This is who sanctifies you. This is who forgives you. So fix your thoughts on him. Dwell on him. What is Christianity? 
If you look on TV and listen to many speakers and preachers today, it's just this watered down uh, trying to be happy, you know. And other, other television pastors you'll listen to will say it's all about getting the most out of life. And it's about, about acquiring things even and, and, and riches and possessions and, and divine health, etc., etc. The, the root, the rodex, the center of Christianity is just like the word says, it is Christ. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. Consider Jesus, you who have been saved, you who have been sanctified, you who are now brothers with Christ. Don't forget, consider Jesus, pay closer attention to exactly who he is. This is extremely important because if we lose this, we lose everything. And if Christianity becomes something uh, besides centered on Christ, then what on earth is it? It's become an entirely different religion a false religion that will not save anyone. So we have to make sure our churches, our families, even our own faith is rooted in Christ and to remind ourselves of Him daily, what He has done, and fix your salvation on Him because this is the center of everything. Uh, Their tendency and ours is to drift, so we must be intentional about fixing our thoughts on Christ. Uh, as, as a boat, even uh, the analogy that is given here of a boat drifting in the ocean is what we do mentally and even spiritually. We be, begin to wander unless we center uh, on Christ and lower the anchor down and make sure that we are anchored on and in Christ Jesus. So always reminding ourselves of who he is and our salvation is based in him. A few qu- quick questions to, to apply to yourself. Uh, how often do you personally consider Jesus. Think about that just for a moment. How often do you personally consider Jesus and really dwell on him and what he did and who he is? A great exercise is to do this more often. Uh, You can go back to the first chapter of Hebrews. You may read the first uh, chapter of Colossians. There's multiple places we can look at that just really summarize who Jesus is. But just begin to dwell on him and who he is and really is the anchor of our soul. Our our salvation is found in Him. Our eternal home is found in this relationship. The forgiveness of any wrong that we've ever done is is found in Him. And He is the anchor of everything. So how often do you personally consider Jesus? Think about that. Do you need to consider more than you do currently? You need to consider Jesus more than you do currently. I think it's a rhetorical question. I believe all of us would say, yes, we do. We covered this a few weeks ago, but we live in a society that is full of distractions, distractions everywhere. You got you have your job, you have kids, you have TV. Uh, we, we mentioned this a few weeks ago, but but at any one moment, if you look around your house, there's probably multiple iPhones going on, iPads going on. The TV is on as well. And people are distracted, mentally, totally distracted. Now, how often do we consider Jesus? It's a rare event now to actually sit still and be still, as the Bible says, and know that he is God. Uh, Jesus always went away to concentrate, to pray, encouraged us to do the same. It speaks of the prayer closet, getting away from the distractions of the world and focusing on him. And we're still called to do that. So even in today's times, we probably have to be more uh, intentional about considering Jesus, dwelling on these things. You have obviously made some intentionality to your life by arriving here tonight. That is good. 
But it's a matter of doing this on a daily basis, considering him, dwelling on him, concentrate on who he is. Uh, last question. Do you need to pay much more, much closer attention to what you have heard, lest you drift away from it? This question is also rhetorical based on Hebrews chapter two, that, yes, we definitely need to. We need to pay very close attention to the word of God or else we get distracted from it. So making sure we are in church, making sure we're reading our Bibles ourselves, making sure we're talking to God, guarding our families as well. You that have families, guarding your wives, guarding your kids, making sure they're getting the word of God in them as well, lest they drift away from it. One of the worst things that can happen to a parent and many older parents perhaps here have had this happen is that you have a child or a grandchild who drifts away from the things that you held so important. Uh, we have to make sure we pass this down to the next generation and instill it in such a way that they pass it on down to the next generation as well. Uh, carry on here uh, in verse one. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now, Mo, he's going to throw this back, and we'll see this often in Hebrews. This book is not isolated. It is not an island to itself. It brings the wealth of the Old Testament and the prophets along with it and builds upon it as this, these things have been fulfilled. And he's writing most likely to a, to a Jewish audience here, and most quite commonly, they esteemed Moses uh, extremely high. And he's using this, and it's the title of this series, that Jesus is greater and that he is even greater than Moses himself. Verse two, who was faithful to appoint faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in God's all of God's house. Numbers 12, I believe we have it on the screen tonight, so you don't have to go all the way there. You certainly can if you'd like to. Numbers chapter 12, verse five through nine, we see how the Old Testament really lifts Moses up and exalts Moses. There, there is none like him uh, during his lifetime. Uh, Numbers chapter 12, verse 5 through 9. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. You might remember this particular episode in the Old Testament. They had spoken against Moses. And Moses was the special one that was God was speaking through. Verse 6. And God said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of God. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and they departed. So what, what the writer of Hebrews is, is writing here in chapter 3, he pulls directly from here in Numbers that, that he was a faithful one, that Moses was faithful in all God's house. There was no one more faithful than he. So he's saying Jesus is also faithful in all God's house, but we're going to see that he is even more faithful. Moses is a man. Moses sinned. Jesus does not sin. Verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory, again, he's greater, than even Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. 
So basically he's saying that Moses is great. God's law that was given to Moses is also great. But Jesus and his fulfilling of the law is even greater. Moses was the one who received the Ten Commandments. Extremely important Old Testament figure. Uh, he, he had a special relationship with God. God talked to him in, a, in an extremely unusual way. He received the Ten Commandments. He was faithful in God's house. God appointed him. He was an, a type of apostle. But the one that was to come later, Jesus, fulfills the law that Moses could not keep. Moses sinned. All of Israel sinned, but not Jesus. So he fulfills the law that was given to Moses. So uh, here he says, a house does not, you know, the house does not create itself. And the one who gets the honor for it is actually not the house, but is the architect of it. Here we see that Moses was involved uh, in this house, but that Jesus is the creator of the entire thing. Look at verse four. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now there's a lot in verse 4 and 6. First off, we see here that Moses was a servant, but that Jesus, being greater, is a son. Jesus is God. That's what he's saying here also in verse 4, that every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God, and that Jesus is God. Moses was a servant, but Christ is the son. Also, we see here in uh, in verse five, we see that Moses was in God's house. But Jesus, look at verse six, the prepositional change is over God's house. Very important point. So Moses was in God's house, but Jesus is over the whole thing. He is the builder. He is the architect of it. So, yes, Moses does receive um, some esteem, some some glory, some praise. Absolutely. He was he was faithful and he, he did, did well for a man. So they he does receive some honor, but he is in God's house. Jesus is over the whole thing. Jesus was the architect of it all. He is the one giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. Even then, this is God. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Also, he says here that Moses was uh, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Though God revealed himself in a tremendous way to Moses, also God continued to reveal to him about what was to come later. That everything Moses did was to be a big arrow pointing at the one that was to come. If we look at John chapter 5, verse 45 and 47, uh, you see where Jesus says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, it's Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Again, Jesus here is just saying that I have come, I am the Savior, I'm the Messiah, I am the Christ. And it's not just an isolated event. The one that you look up to the most, the one that you try to obey his laws, Moses, he wrote of me. Everything he was doing was pointing to me. So Jesus here is using the argument that, yes, you believe in Moses, great, but look where he was pointing you. He is not saying salvation is found in these Ten Commandments and us keeping them, but it's going to be found in me. Luke 
uh, 24, verses 25 to 27. It'll be on the screen. Jesus said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is when Jesus has risen from the dead. He's walking with several disciples. He is incognito. They don't realize who he is fully. And he begins to teach them. And he starts way back at Moses and the prophets and builds the case for this one who has come, who has lived a perfect life, who has died, who has risen from the dead. But the point of all this is what Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is saying here, that Moses came to testify to the things that were spoken later. All right, let's keep on going here a little bit. Let's look at uh, the next passage here. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, this passage is one of several where some people have a little little bit of an issue with. And for, first off, we're going to cover um, what is this house? Where is this house of God? And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. A man once said a bad word in the church and was immediately called out by a, another person in the church and said, how on earth could you use profanity in the house of God? Perhaps we've done the same thing before. Think about that for a moment. Uh, so the person says a wrong word, and they're called out by a person in the building, in the church. Uh, say, it's almost like it's extra sin. It's like double point sin, if you know what I mean. All right, You've done that in the house of God. Uh, but this passage is saying what we know to be true, that the house of God is not brick, it's not carpet, it's not the pulpit, it's not the wood stage, it's not the chairs, it's not the concrete slab that we are on, it's not a steeple on top of a church or the cross at the front of the church. What is the house of God? Uh, he says it right here. It is we, it is us. We who have, have been saved by him, we are the house of God. First, thanks, brother. Appreciate it being back there, Henry. First Timothy chapter three fifteen says, "I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God." Not talking about a building, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. First Corinthians three sixteen says, "Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you?" So here the writer of Hebrews is saying that we are the house of God. It is those who have been saved by him. We are the house of God. So it's not about coming into a building and having to act a certain way. It's wherever we go. God is with us. So there should be no difference in a person's life here versus outside of the doors, right? That you should be living as holy as you are right now outside of these doors as well, at your workplace, at your home, uh, in the privacy uh, of your computer screen, wherever you are at, you should be acting. That pressure we sometimes feel to make sure we're living right in this building, it should be with us all the time because God is no more here than he is out there, right? So we are the house of God. Now, a little bit of confusion is held in this verse in several places in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be getting into this in the coming chapters as well. But there is a this is contingent on, if you look closely at that passage, if we hold fast. So yes, you are in the house of God, but he also says it is contingent if we hold fast. This is the first of about four times where the author will say something to the effect of that 
truly saved people are the ones who truly persevere to the end. And we're going to cover this lightly tonight. We're actually going to cover this in our discipleship time that follows the message later. But what exactly is he talking about here? Does this mean that uh, is he saying that a Christian can lose his or her salvation? Is that what is being uh, being said here? Is that what's being stated? If we hold fast and at first glance, it might seem to be saying something like that. And for tonight, we're not going to go deep, deep, deep into it, but we are going to touch on this. Uh, chapter 6 holds more for us and chapter 10 as well as we look more deeply into this. But if you don't mind, turn right where you're at to this passage, highlight it, mark it, and make sure you know where it's at because it will come up in the future. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 37 through 39. This passage, others will allude to quickly here tonight, the ones that will be covered in discipleship are critically important. I write them at the back of your Bible, uh, write them on your heart, because everyone reaches a point where they wonder, am I truly saved? I believe I was saved. Have I, am I still saved? Can I lose my salvation? Uh, it, this is a very important point to have covered. All right. So in light of what we just read, if we hold fast. Now, God is truth and he only presents truth. The word of God is truth. So when we study God's word, we if we find a place that seems to contradict another place, it cannot contradict itself. So it would be only our interpretation of it that is contradictory. So we make sure we read scripture in the light of scripture and scripture shines brightly on this particular issue. So we come to a few places like this in Hebrews. And if we isolate them, it seems like possibly we could lose our salvation. But there's other places where where God speaks on it explicitly, super clear of what our salvation, how long it lasts, who holds it. John 6, verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. This calling we talked about earlier. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Here we have Jesus speaking absolutely clearly to them, to us. The Father gives him, the believers, and he will raise them up on the last day. And absolutely none, no one will be lost, lose nothing. This is really important. John chapter 10, verse 28 and 30, right there we're at. Just flip over a little bit. This will be covered later in discipleship as well. I give them eternal life, speaking of Jesus here, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I'll read this one for you, Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14. We covered it even last week. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Here we see that the guarantor, the one who is guaranteeing our salvation, is not us, but it is God himself. He puts the Holy Spirit in us as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come, our inheritance in heaven. So as we go through the book of Hebrews, we're going to dig into this deeper as we go, but there is no fear of losing our salvation, but there is an importance, and we'll come to this in a moment in the future weeks, 
there is an extreme importance of making sure that you are truly saved. And what we'll find here is he's not talking about a truly saved person losing their salvation, but fool's gold, a, a one who is not a real believer, but may be in the church, may be around Christians, may do Christianesque things, but is not a true believer. And they seem like a Christian for a while, but they're truly not. Uh, let's carry on here. Look at look with me at uh, I believe we're up to verse seven. Uh, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my paths as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. What is he talking about here? He's going back to Moses. He started talking about Moses earlier. He's talking about Moses and the rebellious Israelites in the desert. Moses, God reveals himself to Moses, reveals himself to the Israelites in an unbelievable supernatural way, miracle upon miracle upon miracle, and speaks to them. Yet they did not listen. There was unbelief in them, and they were not obedient to him. Look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Here we see this exhortation again. It's not saying, he's not saying that if you are a true believer and your faith is in Jesus Christ and Him alone for your salvation, that you could lose this. We just covered this in the other passages we looked at. But what he is saying is you got to be careful because even with Moses, the people who were witnessing the supernatural, there was unbelief in their heart. He says, let this be a warning to you also. It's not just being with the brothers. It's not just being in a church. It's not just being baptized. It's not just being a member of a church on a piece of paper. He says, check yourself. Lest, verse 12, there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What does he say? I mean, look at the warnings he's giving us here to to check yourself, to make sure that you are a true believer, to make sure there's not an unbelieving heart inside of you. But then what else does he say in verse 13? Not only to check on yourself, but who? Others, all those that we are around. Like, yes, we are to check ourselves to make sure there's not an unbelieving heart in us that we're fooling ourselves, thinking we're right with God when we're truly not. But then what about your wife? What about your husband? What about your kids? What about your neighbor? What about your coworkers? What about those who say they're believers? They say they're Christians. Have you checked on them to make sure? And this is a big problem we face today. It is almost like as if you are born in America you are a Christian, is what many people think. I'm an American, I have a, a flag at my house, so I am now a Christian, all right? Uh, if you like apple pie, then you are a Christian, you know? The, the, the word Christian has been so watered down to mean almost nothing. And he's saying, no, 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 make sure, check yourself that your faith is fully found in Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus. Concentrate on Him. Don't drift away. Focus in. That's the one that can save you, That Him and Him alone, that's all. Jesus, make sure you have a believing heart, that your belief is in him, but also check on those around you. 
just because they say they're a Christian. And I remember doing this even in college. I, my mom said, you know, don't date anyone unless they say they're a Christian. And I remember I would do good. That'd be the first question I would ask. Are you a Christian? Yes. Awesome. Great. All right. We can go out. That, no, that's not really the case. All right. Uh, you would find out quickly they, they were not true believers. They were, had an unbelieving heart, but they would say they are Christian. So check on those around you. Even though they say they're a Christian, he calls them brothers here. They're kind of in camouflage. They're with us, amongst us, but not really a believer. So check on them. Um, verse 14, oh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, just as a cross-reference, says, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. That this is our job, not to just be concerned with ourselves, but with each other as well. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I'm going to read quickly through this last portion. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Carry on into four just a little bit here. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still remains, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. What is the summary of this portion here? It is Moses, it is the Israelites, it is everything they saw and witnessed, yet there were amongst them this unbelief. They did not truly believe. And he says, check yourself, all right? If, if God spoke this clearly to them, and yet they remained in unbelief, and they were punished for it, imagine you, because you've now received your good news, not just from a man, not just from Moses, but from God incarnate, God in the flesh, Jesus. And if you've received this good news from him, and yet kick it away, then what hope is there for you? As the writer says in, in Hebrews 2, uh, not what escape is there if we neglect this salvation? There is none. This is from God. Salvation in Christ and Him alone. So the, the uh, summary of this entire chapter is simply that Christ is greater than. We're moving on to He is greater than Moses Himself. Also to check yourself for salvation. Are you truly saved? Is your belief founded in Christ and Him alone for your salvation? And to check others as well. Check on them and make sure that their faith is in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for allowing us to, to look at who you are. And uh, I pray that we would indeed check our salvation. Not that we have to suffer every day wondering if we are saved or wondering if we're not saved. That is not the point of this at all. But it is good to make sure that we are saved, that we have truly considered Jesus that our salvation is based on the gospel of Jesus Christ, of you, him putting on this flesh, living and dying, taking our sins on the cross, taking the wrath of our, for our sins upon himself, paying that price so that those who believe in him shall be saved, shall be rescued, sins erased, sins forgiven, gone, that he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, will be the final judge over all mankind. 
and that the true believer has no fear of any of this because our sins have been forgiven by the very one who will be the judge of all. We thank you, God, for providing salvation for us in Jesus Christ. May we make sure that we are true believers and we may, may we have this desire to check on others as well to make sure that their faith is rooted and founded in Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.